Okay, awesome. All right. So we had in a moment to connect around epiphanies. And at least in my group, it seemed like a lot of things did come to mind for folks. Um, but what does this, I think we all have a general sense of what we mean when we talk about an epiphany, but what does the term actually mean? Where, where does it come from? Um, that's what I'm gonna talk about now. So the, the term epiphany, the English word comes from a Greek word, epiphaneia, which meant manifestation or appearance. Um, that's, that's really what epiphany comes from, manifestation or appearance. And long before it took on its current meaning, Epiphany was understood to be a manifestation or an appearance specifically of the divine. So an epiphany originally, as the word, you know, has derived from, was an experience of seeing God show up in a meaningful way. Eventually, that would evolve to be kind of how we think of epiphany today. So Merriam-Webster would define epiphany this way, a usually sudden manifestation or perception of the essential nature or meaning of something. An intuitive, or number two, an intuitive grasp of reality through something such as an event, usually simple and striking, or you could say an illuminating discovery, realization, or disclosure. Okay, that's probably more in the line of how we use the word epiphany. But the original understanding of the word epiphany, the understanding that the epiphany is ultimately a manifestation or an appearance, a revelation of divinity. That's the source of a tradition that much of the church has historically celebrated at this time of year. But it's often been overlooked or forgotten altogether um, by huge swaths of the church, particularly American Protestants. Um, it's the recognition that Jesus's own presence in the world is an epiphany that divinity is revealed in a unique way in him that the tradition of the epiphany celebration is about. Traditionally, there've been two main stories from scripture that different parts of the church have reflected on surrounding the epiphany celebration with whole liturgies, songs, games, services, foods, traditions, and so on um, that are part of it. Now here at Haven, we haven't always marked epiphany, Sometimes we've celebrated it directly, other times we haven't. Um, but this year, as we transition from 2021 to 2022, I thought it might be a good year for us to return to this tradition in some way. So I'm going to reshare some reflections I actually prepared a number of years ago on the famous epiphany, on the most famous epiphany story, with the hopes that we might benefit as a community from connecting with this tradition today. No doubt most of us are likely more familiar with the tradition of considering in these first days of January, the new year. Many people spend the last week of December reviewing the highlights of the year that's just finished and looking to the year to come, making resolutions, setting new goals and so on. Perhaps you've been doing some of that in recent days. And I think the new year, on, in a sense, it's kind of a false, you know, um, moment, right? There's nothing that has dramatically changed um, the day that the calendar changes. And yet it is an opportunity to mark time, to recognize what has passed, what is coming. This year we find ourselves entering the new year 
as uh, if you missed it earlier, I just I did name this morning. I I myself tested positive for COVID, so we are in the midst of another surge of COVID cases. So once again, here we are meeting virtually, recognizing there are reasons to be concerned, as that demonstrates that meeting in person carries more risks than it did even just a few weeks ago. While vaccines and treatments have come along, changing the place we are in this COVID reality, we are not in March 2020 again. Um, we are still dealing with a global pandemic. As much as we might desire to just be over it, we're not. There is still uncertainty about what comes next. We might make resolutions that are hopeful, but if the last two years has taught us anything, it's that we have to hold our plans lightly. If ever it were appropriate to invite revelation and reflection on where God might be present with us in this moment and moving among us as the new year begins, I think this is a good year for that kind of practice. Epiphany, the holiday, the, the, the celebration, comes at the end of Advent. Advent was about looking ahead, recognizing with longing what we are looking toward, what we are hoping for, just as our spiritual ancestors looked ahead to the coming of the Messiah. Epiphany comes after that. Epiphany is about recognizing what has appeared, what has been made manifest in our presence. As the new year dawns, I hope we can hold both, both that which we are looking ahead towards with longing and hope, and also that which we recognize is present with us here, even in this moment. So today we're going to look at the epiphany story that's the center of the Western church tradition. Um, the Eastern church has a different story that I think maybe we'll consider together next week. But the Western church generally for the celebration of epiphany focuses on the story of the Magi. So in much of the Christian world, epiphany wraps up the 12-day celebration of Christmas, um, which is a period sometimes known as Christmas tide that lasts from December 25th through January 6th. So the official Epiphany Day is actually this coming Thursday, January 6th. But this is like Epiphany Sunday, um, the Sunday kind of in, in, in connected to it. So in some traditions, gifts were given throughout the nearly two-week period, uh, just as we learned from the song about the partridge in the pear tree. And at the end of the 12 days comes the Epiphany celebration, which recognizes the arrival of the Magi from the East. Now, this is not the nativity story we get from the Gospel of Luke, the one that tells us about angels and shepherds and a manger. No, this is, comes from Matthew's Gospel, Matthew's account of Jesus's life. It tells a different story of Jesus's coming. So we're going to take a look at that familiar story today and pull it out of the Christmas pageant and just let it stand on its own. And as we do so, I invite you to consider moments of epiphany or manifestation or appearance, revelation, however you want to name it, that you might find provocative in the story. So we pick up with Matthew chapter two, starting at verse one. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, in the time of King Herod, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, 
where is the one who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was alarmed and all Jerusalem with him. After assembling all the chief priests and experts in the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. I'll just wait a moment. Let's see if we can catch up with the slides. All right, yeah, we'll pick it up there. Uh-huh, okay, yep. After assembling all the chief priests and experts in the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. Going on. In Bethlehem of Judea, they said, for it is written this way by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are in no way least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod privately summoned the wise men and determined from them when the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and look carefully for the child. When you find him, inform me so I can go and worship him as well. And after listening to the king, they left. And once again, the star they saw when it rose led them until it stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they shouted joyfully. As they came into the house and saw the child with Mary, his mother, they bowed down and worshiped him. They opened their treasure boxes and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. After being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they went back by another route to their own country. All right, we'll stop it there for now. So this is a familiar story. The plot points are probably known to us, but have we taken much time to consider who the various characters are and what each of their experiences uh, might have been. That's what I'm gonna invite us to consider as we think through this familiar story today. So who were each of these different people? What did epiphany mean for each of them? Who saw it? Who missed it? And what does the story communicate about the bigger story that Matthew was beginning by telling us this little anecdote? How might that affect our own experiences of finding ourselves in that bigger story? Well, let's just start by considering what we know about the various players in Matthew's story. First, let's talk about Herod. He was the current political king of the Jews, reigning on behalf of the Roman Empire. And the story starts with him receiving this delegation of foreigners and it says that he and all of Jerusalem were alarmed by them. So that I find a bit striking. Like not so much that Herod's alarmed, but why is Jerusalem as a whole so alarmed? It says the whole city was alarmed. Well, I think the answer to that lies in understanding a bit about who Herod the Great actually was. Josephus is the great, uh, is like a, a very important ancient historian from that period. And he gives us more about Herod the Great than any other historical figure of the era. And Josephus in his writings makes it clear that Herod was a ridiculously cruel and violent man, particularly prone to paranoia and violent responses to it in his later years. Uh, so he killed four of his own sons, 
because he feared they were after his throne. He killed his favorite wife among 10 and her mother. He killed one of his chief priests by drowning him during a water polo game. And when Herod himself was near his death, when he was on his deathbed dying of illness, he issued an order to summon the head of every household to a stadium he had built and have them all executed the moment that he died so that all of Israel would mourn at the same time. He knew that people would not mourn his own passing, but he could not bear the idea that people would celebrate when he was dead. And so he wanted everyone to have something to cry about. Now, thankfully the order was never carried out, but it just tells you the fact that that's what he wanted, what kind of a guy he was. So given all that, the idea that this group of like foreign people of power from a neighboring empire come to inquire about the new king, uh, you can understand why that would be alarming, right? Not just for Herod, but for everybody around him, especially the, the political class around him, the people of Jerusalem were right to be alarmed. What might Herod do if this is true? And Matthew goes on to tell us when Herod realizes the Magi have tricked him, he does respond violently and tyrannically. Picking up the story in verse 16. When Herod saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, he became enraged. He sent men to kill all the children in Bethlehem and throughout the surrounding region from the age of two and under, according to the time he had learned from the wise men. That's the story, is the massacre of the innocents. So that's Herod. After Herod, we have the chief priests, the experts in the law. These ones I think are particularly interesting to consider. These are the religious leaders who represent the faith that Jesus is sent to be the fulfillment of. These are supposed to be folks who believe in prophecies of the Messiah. They've studied them. Clearly, Matthew sees them as having reached the same conclusions that he is making. They're the ones who say, yeah, we think the Messiah is supposed to come from Bethlehem. And yet, when the Magi informed them that they believe that that prophesied anointed one is here, these guys don't seem to respond. They don't celebrate. They don't go check it out for themselves. They don't go worship. Why? Are they genuinely not really interested in the Messiah? Are they too scared of Herod to want anything to do with the Christ child? Clearly, they have seen there's a price to pay being in alliance with anyone Herod finds threatening. And Herod drowned one of their own for suspected disloyalty. So maybe that's part of it. Or perhaps they mistrust these foreigners. They don't believe some foreign astrologers could actually have a beat on the coming of the Messiah when they don't. Surely God would announce the coming directly to them, they may have thought, not send some pagan weirdos from another land to show them God's anointed. Whatever the reason, their inaction ends up meaning that not only do they miss the epiphany, the arrival of the pinnacle moment of everything they're supposed to be about, they also become complicit in the violent tragedy that follows as Herod in his paranoia executes all those children. Then of course, there are the travelers at the center of the story. 
the Magi. In our translation, it's uh, shared as wise men here. And these characters are the most mysterious. Who were they? What do we know about them? Were there three of them? Were they kings like the song says? Did they look like people in the figures in many of our nativity sets? The interesting thing about the Magi is that they have been a subject of intense speculation for thousands of years. And also we have to acknowledge there's been a lot of holiday tradition that has developed around those people, but it's developed apart from the actual biblical account. It's developed apart from Matthew's story or from any outside historical information we have. So for example, early on, tradition began to imagine that there were three of them because there are three gifts. So by the Middle Ages, various Christians had even named the three of them and created physical descriptions. You have stories about Baltazar and Gaspar and Malchior, but all of this is kind of like its own set of, you know, like fan fiction. Um, some traditions say one was from Asia, one was from Africa, one was from Arabia. And while that's a lovely inclusive picture and certainly representative of kind of like where the story is going, including people from every tongue and tribe and nation in the work God is doing through Jesus, that idea doesn't actually reflect the story Matthew was telling. Matthew never stipulates a number. Contemporary scholars point out it would be rare in those days to make such a journey, particularly with valuables, without a large entourage. So likely there were more like there were many more than three. In fact, the Eastern Orthodox Church has historically believed that there were 12. We can also rule out them being kings. There's really nothing in the text to indicate that. That tradition to call them three kings seems to be rooted in reading back prophetic words from the Hebrew Bible like this, arise, shine for your light arrives, the splendor of the Lord shines on you and nations come to your light, kings, to your bright light. So I guess because once upon a time, some of the Hebrew prophets talked about eventually kings coming to Jesus, there was an understanding that maybe these were the kings. But I think we can say they weren't kings. The text also says nothing specifically about where in the East they've come or who exactly they are. The term given by Matthew for these visitors in the Greek word is the Greek word magoi, a plural of the singular magus. Some believe that this is a reference to a particular group of Zoroastrian priests that served in Persia and went by that term of magoi. However, other literature, including uses of that word in the Bible itself, make it clear that the word was actually used a lot more broadly than just that particular group. And the heyday of that group was about four to 500 years prior to Jesus. So it's not necessarily a fair assumption to say, oh, because they were called Magoi or Mag Magi, that they were part of that particular sect. Still, Persia is a reasonable guess as to their origin. Another reasonable guess with much attesting to it is that they were from Arabia, specifically the kingdom of Sheba, contemporary Yemen, if you want to go ahead and put the, the map up, we can take a look at it. During that time, Sheba would have been a wealthy nation with gold mines available. And it was also the one place in the world where the trees that produced frankincense and myrrh were actually grown. 
So most likely, whoever these folks were, they probably were coming from either directly to the east, you can see the per where Persia would be, or the southeast in Sheba. It's a long journey either way to get all the way to Jerusalem, which is there on the left. Okay, you can take that down. So whether, despite the fact that our nativity um, sets show the Magi alongside shepherds, like they definitely would not have been in a stable with Jesus on the night he was born. Those stories do not sync up. Whether they came um, from Persia or Sheba, they had a long journey to undertake. Who knows, the months of sorting out what they were seeing in the sky making preparations, and then finally embarking on the epic trip. By the time they found him, Jesus was likely a year or two old, which is why Herod was said to have massacred the children two and under. So what do we know about who the Magi are? What really matters? Well, we know that there's some sort of astrologer magicians. They were learned in science and spirituality in ways that were foreign to the story of God's people, of the story of Israel, and yet their unique journeys lead them to see the appearance of divinity in Jesus. And we know that this capacity to identify Jesus, to be drawn to him, to worship him for who he is, that that is something very unique. Because when you think about it, every other character that encounters Jesus at his birth has to be told by some sort of divine messenger about his coming. So we have the, the Luke stories. Angel comes to Zechariah. Angel comes to Mary and Joseph. There's a leaping baby filled with the Holy Spirit in Elizabeth's womb. A whole choir of angels sent to a group of shepherds. But these magic they somehow figure out something is going on, kind of like all on their own. Their own understanding of the stars and, and perhaps their own knowledge of the Hebrew stories of faith lead them when they see some sort of phenomenon in the sky to believe something important is happening in Israel that has significance for them. And it's important enough that they undertake a long, dangerous, costly journey to see it with their own eyes and to participate in it. Their gifts demonstrate that they understand the unique character of Jesus's identity, perhaps more than anyone else. They give him gold, which was a sign of royalty. It's recognition that Jesus is a kind of king. They give him frankincense, a sign of divinity, Frankincense was the incense burned in religious ceremonies. It honors that Jesus is worthy of worship, the kind of worship that is reserved for God. And then they give him myrrh, which is a sign of mortality. Myrrh was the spice used for embalming. The gift of it marks an understanding of not just Jesus's divinity, but also his humanity, and certainly foreshadows his untimely death. Of all the people who somehow understand what this birth might mean in a way that no one really could, no one else could, it's these magi from the East.
What does that mean? Finally, we must consider the Holy Family. Matthew doesn't tell us anything about Mary and Joseph's response, but I have to imagine that of all the strange encounters they've had in recent years, this one might've been the most mind-blowing. I mean, they've had a lot of weird things happen. Visits from angels, shepherds sent by an angel, prophets to the temple, recognizing Jesus when he was dedicated at eight days old on top of you know a miraculous conception. And yet now, a year or two later, this large delegation of foreigners arrives, kneels before their toddler with tales of the long journey they've undertaken to find this newborn king and then bring out treasures to present to the family. I imagine they must've been overcome afresh with the wonder of it all that they've just been going about their routine as parents with a young child living in Bethlehem when this delegation shows up at the door of their little house the gifts they give are extravagant, abundant. And as it happens, probably miraculously supply them with the wealth provided for them to make an important journey to Egypt to protect their infant son. So the Epiphany story features these four sets of characters. We've got Herod, the religious elites who worked with him, the Magi, and Jesus's family. Each of them experiences epiphany in a different way. Herod perceives it as a threat. For him, this is not good news. This is bad news that must be eliminated. The religious elites miss it. They can't perceive what's happening right under their noses, though this was supposedly the story their lives were centered around. The Magi receive the manifestation. They perceive it first. They see something in the stars and their perception leads them on a journey to find out more, to come and see the epiphany for themselves. And for Mary and Joseph, they too receive a deeper revelation. The epiphany story, the epiphany has been slowly unfolding, I think, for them. First with the angel visits, the pregnancy, the birth surrounded by shepherds. But here, as these foreigners celebrate their son, I think they understand in a deeper way that this child is not just for them or for their people. The community he calls around himself is not just their community. The epiphany is about more than the identity of Jesus. It's about the identity of the community God forms around him. Even from birth, Matthew is demonstrating Jesus's unique capacity to call diverse community into existence. This is the child who would grow to say, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. Many chapters after this story, Matthew, this is the beginning of Matthew's gospel. He will end it with Jesus's encouragement to his closest disciples to go and make followers of all nations. This capacity of Jesus to call folks from different ethnic backgrounds, different religious practices, different kinds of stories into his greater story is revealed in Epiphany right at the beginning for those who have eyes to see it. We started this morning 
considering moments of epiphany in our own lives. Moments when something essential became clear and manifest, just like my own sense of calling into ministry. If you're like me, you may think of those moments of epiphany as pretty rare standout experiences, fleeting special milestones in our lives. And in a sense, they are, of course, unique and special. But I wonder if part of the reason we don't experience them more regularly might have less to do with how often they are available and more to do with our own inattention. What if there were actually epiphanies every day all around us? Opportunities to see the divine made manifest in the world around us regularly but we were too preoccupied or discouraged to notice them. The Magi were looking at the stars. They were searching the traditions. They were eager for a genuine encounter with the divine. And so they were sensitive to the epiphany occurring. Whereas the religious leaders in Jesus's own community missed it altogether. If we're not careful, might we suffer the same fate? Perhaps if we want to experience fresh clarity, fresh insight from the divine as we embark on another year beginning in this cloud of COVID, we need to look to the Magi for some inspiration. Perhaps we could use some of that same stargazing quality that those astrologer magicians had that same sense of wonder and openness to possibility they embodied in their journey to Bethlehem. What might it mean for us to lift our heads up and look up today? What epiphanies might lie before us if we dared? Friends, this is my hope and prayer for our community, this epiphany, that we might have the courage, Haven, this year and beyond, to allow ourselves, even in the midst of all that feels uncertain and challenging. I'm sorry. To allow ourselves to dream, to journey, to risk, to wonder together. And may we discover God's manifestation present with us anew as we do. May we find our own epiphanies this year. Amen. Before we move into our second breakout group, let me pray for us. And I'm just gonna pray um, kind of a, us into a, a place of reflection, invite you to sit with some questions with the divine and see what the spirit might name for you in these, in these questions. God, we thank you for the ways that the epiphany story reminds us that we are not just longing for what has come, but we also have the gift to notice and receive what is here. Notice and receive your appearance. And so I ask that you'd be speaking to us 
as we consider together. Where might you, O divine, be appearing in unexpected ways today? Where might you be appearing in unexpected ways today? Would your spirit be present in a, with us in a way that we might notice it? I ask that you might sit with us and bring insight as we consider who are those that can perceive your appearance. Who are those who can perceive your appearance today? How might their wisdom surprise us? And finally, we ask for insight as we consider where are we in this story? Where do we find ourselves in this story? Are we with those in power who felt threatened by revelation? Are we with those who were too wrapped up in their own experiences or agendas that they missed what was coming? Are we following the contingent who has perceived something new, a new perspective that brings enlightenment and understanding? Are we with the Holy Family who recognize divinity in our midst, but need to expand our awareness to receive those coming from surprising places to give us a fuller picture of what you are doing, oh God. Would you help us to receive the ways you are appearing to us, the gifts that they are? Amen. Welcome back. Hope you had some good dialogue around epiphanies. Um, originally, I wanted to give you all um, we were going to try a practice that has been growing in a number of churches of, I think, in the last decade, um, a lot of churches that observe Epiphany. They also take the opportunity to kind of have um, their own potential Epiphany experience um, through something called star words, um, where basically the idea is there's like a whole bunch of stars and they each have a word on them and people draw them kind of at random. But, um, and then that's kind of a word for the year for you. Um, and a number of churches that have observed this as an epiphany practice, as an opportunity to kind of maybe model the, um, the Magi a bit. 
have experienced it to be really quite meaningful. Um, and so I made all these stars for y'all this week. <laughs> I was cutting and uh, putting labels on and they are, I think they're kind of fun. So we will do that together at some point, um, but we won't do it virtually. So we'll just continue uh, for the next few weeks, some epiphany kinds of reflections. And, um, and eventually, hopefully we'll, if we can meet in person, I think that would be the ideal place to give the stars away. So hopefully in two weeks, things will feel better than they do feel right now. And we can do that and we can share them virtually with those who aren't able to join, but um, that is coming. So thank you for being a part of this um, beginning conversation around epiphany um, and what it means this week as we start the new year together. So we're gonna now move into worship.